want to sort of continue the theme about God's word. I know it's something on Pastor's heart that he introduced this where we read quite a lot of the scriptures now. And uh, it's vital for the Christian. It's so easy to want just mini sermons and just uh, read a tiny little few verses of the Bible and think somehow that will sustain us because it won't. And so uh, unless we're feeding on God's word, the level of our Christian enjoyment and life, it, it drops down to the absolute bare minimum. I want to start by asking you one or two rhetorical questions. That means I don't expect you to answer, but I expect you to think about the answers and maybe you'll go home and think about the answers to these questions because although they're quite superficial, they're quite deep, like lots of things of God when you start to think about them. The first question is, do you love God? You say, well, of course I love God. What does that mean, though? And what does it mean to you to love God? Now, affairs of the heart are difficult to explain sometimes. And love is an affair of the heart. Love is almost like a proof that God exists. We're not just chemical beings like uh, scientists put us together. And the fact that we love is one of the proofs that God exists. So what do you mean by you love God? Could you explain that? Because we're different, and so the way that one loves or one would express love could be different from another. Secondly, do you love God's word? What does that mean? And what does that mean to you to to love God's word. I've sort of come to the conclusion, the things that we love are the things that we'll happily do and get involved in. I always find time for the things that I love. I mean, I have to do some things that I don't love, and so my duty requires that I do it. But the things that I love, I always find time for them. The things that I don't sometimes get pushed to the end of the line. If we don't love God's word, we won't read much of it. It's as simple as that. We have to love God and we have to somehow realise that God speaks and is in his word and so we love his word and so to love God is to love his word and to spend time in his word. If we want to find someone who really loved the Word of God, where would we look for it in Scripture? Well, I direct you to the largest book in the Bible, which of course is the book of Psalms. And then I direct you to the largest chapter in the largest book, which is 119. As you read through 119, and I encourage you to do it, it is fairly long, it's nearly 200 verses, but as you read through those verses, he is saying the same thing over and over and over again. In fact, it gets quite tedious and boring. I mean, if the word of God could ever get boring, which it can't. And he just says, I love the law of God. And of course, for him, when David is talking about the law, he's talking about the Torah, the first five books. So he's not talking just about Leviticus and those laws that are written there. He's talking about the first five books. And he says, I love the Word of God. I love it. And for two, 200 verses, he tells you why he loves it and how it's important to him. At least six or seven times he says, the Word of God delights me. 
Does it delight you? When you read it, is it like something lovely and precious? And it just, it just inspires you, it just encourages you, just makes you feel good. Because if it doesn't, you won't read much of it. And the little you read won't cause you to be strong in your Christianity. At the beginning of this lockdown, I thought, well, I'm a bit locked in here. I want to set myself a project, something to do. Of course, I like sitting and reading, so it was a sitting reading project. And I thought, what I'll do, I'll read the Bible through in the next couple of months. Now you think, oh, could you do it that quickly? Well, it takes about an hour and a half a day, but it takes discipline to do that. But of course, there's something wonderful in reading the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's almost like you get uh, an overview of the whole thing. You're following the history of God's people and then the wonderful books of Psalms and, and wisdom. The prophets are a bit hard to slog through the prophets, you know. They, there's a lot of doom and gloom there. And then you, of course, break into the New Testament and the Gospels followed by the letters of the church. And of course, at the end of that process, you think, hmm, it was hard at times, but it was worth it. You had something of an overview of the whole thing. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As I started to read it, page by page, day after day, I found it depressing. You said, well, come on, Phil. It's the word of God. You didn't read it to be depressed. No, listen, there was nothing wrong about God. God's perfect and holy and pure and righteous and he's wonderful. It's us. It's the people. And as you read it through, it is a little bit depressing. If we just look at Genesis, you think Genesis starts with creation. This is going to be wonderful. But we haven't got two or three chapters into it and we've got the fall. We haven't got into six chapters and we've got the flood. God wants to wipe everyone out. And you think, this book is depressing. This, this isn't an exciting read, as it were. It is exciting because God is speaking to us through it. But you think, this is terrible. And then we get the Tower of Babel and we think, can it get worse? But then there's a bright spot because Abraham appears on the scene. This man of faith, this man of determination. But then Lot messes everything up. And then Ishmael is born, and we think, God, this is terrible. And then, of course, there's a bright spot at the end of, Ge of, of Genesis where, where Joseph comes onto the sea. Now, Joseph is a type of Jesus in so many ways. He does nothing wrong, but his life is horrendous. His brothers give him such a hard time in the house of Potiphar. He has to fight off a seduction. He finds himself in prison for something like 13 years. He struggles with so many things. He eventually comes out on top of everything. So as you read through it, it can be exhausting. And then of course you read into Exodus and all the things that happened there and the plagues and, the, and then you move into Leviticus. That's a bit hard work with the law. Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges. By the time I got to Judges, 
I was feeling quite bad. I've got to be honest. It says the people of God had turned their back on him. They just did exactly what they wanted to do. They didn't care about what God said. They just, everything they did what was right, it says several times, they did what was right in their own eyes. And in the book of Judges, you see some of the most terrible stories in the word of God. Just horrific things that God's people did to them, their own people. Just terrible. Some of the ugliest stories are there. Then as I'm reading through and through, get to the end of, of Judges, up pops this little book of Ruth. Oh! Just about four pages. Four chapters. If you read it, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes, depending on your speed of reading. And if you've got something on your app, on your phone, you get people to read it to you. That's good, because there's sometimes different voices, and there's, you know, uh, sound effects and things. So I read this book through, and I read it through again, and I read it through again, and I was stopped. It was as though... God said, it's ugly up to now. It's been really difficult. And I think you've probably had enough of sin and slaughter and grumbling and complaining and rebellion and revolt. I need to lift you up now. And in this book, this book is so beautiful. As you read it, Nobody does anything wrong. Everyone is kind and loving and righteous. Everyone is like that. It's just God takes you to a beautiful place. God in it is not obvious. He never speaks. He never makes a pronouncement. He's not obvious because he is in everything. He's behind every See, everything that takes place, God, this invisible God, is working in the background of everything. See, God's doing that in our lives, isn't he? He's not always talking to us or always directing us, but he's working behind the scenes. Um, I'm sorry about you haven't got your flight, but God's working behind the scenes. And so we can rest in the fact that if you stay, it's for a reason. If you get on an earlier flight, it'll be for a reason. God is working, and so we learn to trust God in his invisibleness, working behind the scenes. He's everywhere in this book. Well, I want to go through it very quickly. Uh, I won't do it service in 30 minutes, but I'll do my best, because what I want you to do, I want to so inspire you to go home and read it. Uh, you say, well, uh, I've got my program for reading the Bible. That's absolutely fine, and sometimes we need that. We need the system to work to because we can be ill-disciplined or something. But what I want you to do, if I do my job well today, is to inspire you to love God's Word more. Because if you don't love it, you won't read it. And if you don't read it, you will suffer. And if you read it the wrong way, you still will suffer. You have to read the word of God loving his word. 
Jesus said something to the Pharisees. He says, you read the word of God expecting to find me there, but you won't. We go, that's a contradiction. No, it wasn't, because their hearts were wrong. We approach God loving him. God wants us to love him. He wants us to love his word. I want you, if you don't now, or if you've got a little bit cold, to fall in love with his word. Don't read it just out of duty. I remember when I was a young man going into ministry, he said to me, this person, he said, there's a danger if you're in ministry, you only read the Bible to get sermons. He said, that's not good. You should read the Bible because you love God and you love the Word of God. Well, it's no different for me or as it is for anyone else. We have to love His Word. Well, the story, so if you want to go there, uh, it's Ruth. Uh, you, you sometimes have to uh, dig around a little bit to find it because I said it's just four, four pages in most Bibles. Well, yeah, just that, four little chapters. A beautiful, beautiful story. It starts a little bit with tragedy, but tragedy is not a bad thing. We have tragedy in life, and bad things do happen. But listen, in the tragedy of life, and our brother spoke of death, in the tragedy of it, there is a beauty in it. For the believer, we know that it's just the stepping stone. It's not the end of something, they are leaving and departing us, and one day we will leave and depart, but it's not death, it's the, it's the doorway into something new, something exciting. I want to die. I wouldn't want to stay here forever. I wouldn't want to see all my family and friends around me die, and I have to keep going on. I want to step forward into the next arena of life, the new excitement there is, so it starts with some tragedy. It's a family of four, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, they have two sons, uh, Marlon and uh, Kilron, Kilion, yeah, sometimes it's spelled with a C-H, sometimes with a K. They live in Bethlehem, and what has happened, uh, a famine has come against Israel. Often God would send famine to deal with his people, to bring them back to himself. We're not told why the famine is, but there is a famine, and so... Uh, Elimelech has to do something. He's probably already let borrowed money against his farm and put himself in debt, but the, f the famine isn't disappearing. So the only thing he can do is take his family, leave the little farm they have, and go to a neighbouring country where there wasn't a famine. Now, Israel, all the countries that ever surround Israel are always at war with them. It hasn't changed. It was the same in the Bible, and it's the same today. They're a little enclave of a country surrounded by the enemy. And so all around, wherever Eliminate takes his family to a bordering country, there are going to be uh, hostilities towards them. Anyway, so they pack and they go and they move off. A tragedy happens. After a while there, we're not told exactly when, the father dies. The two sons, they then marry Moabite women. Well, 
They shouldn't really have married Moabite women, but there we are. Every man did what he thought was right in his own heart, and he didn't listen much to the things of God. So these two young men, they married Moabite women. Within ten years, the two young men die. So the story takes you down to uh, the bottom somewhere, down to a depth. It's quite, it's quite miserable in such. It's, it's tragedy, but tragedy is part of life. We're not talking about death and slaughter and sin and rebellion. We're talking about the tragedies of life. The poor widows are left. A widow was destined to poverty in the times of God. Unless a man could support a woman, the woman had no way of moving forward uh, in life at all. Certain poverty. So, uh, the mother-in-law talks to her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Opera, and says, listen, the best thing that you can do, you go home to your mother back in uh, where she is and find yourself some new husbands. They can look after you and care for you. You're still relatively young. They weren't chickens. I mean, she'd been married 10 years. They were perhaps between 30 and 40 years of age, something like that. You go back and you can marry again. For me, the best thing is, because the people of Moab won't support me, I'm from another nation, I'm just a widow. If I go back, there are laws in Israel where I can be supported. So that was the decision. So they packed their things. And when it comes to the time of separation, we find that Ruth cannot separate herself from her mother-in-law. A lot of Bibles, uh, books in the Bible, they have a key verse to the book. God doesn't say it's a key verse. Uh, men and women who have studied the word over and over said, this is a key verse. There's a key verse in Ruth. I want to read it to you. It's found in Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Ruth chapter 1, 16 and 17. Naomi is urging her two daughters-in-law to go back to their mother. But this is what Ruth says. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. I mean, can there be a greater statement of commitment? What on earth had happened in the heart of Ruth that she could think and be like that? I mean, usually there's a bit of tension, isn't there, between daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws. I don't know if that's true, a uh, liar that I am. Always, <laughs> there is something of tension. Maybe the mother thinks, I've looked after my son all these years, you won't do it as well. And of course, the love of, of the son is turning from the mother, is turning to now his, his new wife, and, and so his dependency and everything is, is shifting. And, uh, it's, but what a commitment of this woman. Where did that come from? 
Where did she find that? How did she find that in her heart? She is prepared to sacrifice everything that she knows to go to a foreign country just to commit to looking after her mother-in-law. And she seals it with her lips, with these words. She seals the commitment in her heart. See, sometimes when we think something in our heart, we need to seal it with our lips. And remember, what you seal with your lips, God hears. And he holds you accountable. We're so sometimes loose with our words. We say so much, we promise so much. But God's listening. And God, if he says something, he believes that he should say, we should say it like he says it. If he says it, he's committed to it. He's not shifting. If he says, I'll be there, he'll be there. Whatever happens, he'll be there. And he expects us to be very similar to him. So as we finish this first chapter, this first act, this first scene, we're left with some searching questions. Now, I want you to read this story and just let the love of it and everything it is wash over you. Sometimes we, we read the Bible by pulling it apart. Every verse, every word. Sometimes it's important. You know, you read something like the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans, you pull every word out because every word seems to mean something. Let this story minister to your heart. There is a lot of doctrine and theology in it, but let's pose ourselves some questions at the end of this first chapter. Should the family have left Israel and gone to a neighbouring hostile country? I'm not giving you any answers, I'm just helping you with the questions. See, we have to ask the questions. Why would we ask questions when we read the Word of God? Because it's in the questions that God speaks the answers. Sometimes we think, oh, I just read the Word of God and it'll all be plain. No, it's not. God leaves great gaps so we don't understand that we would go back to him and say, why? What for? He's, he's written it in such a way he requires us to come and to talk to him. Why did all the men die? And why did the, the two sons die so young? Did God have any part to play in their death? Oh, we're getting on some theological ground now that would be a bit nervy. But ask the question. Because in asking the questions, God can enter in and start to speak to you and give you the answers to the questions. And of course, that last question I'd like to get from this chapter is, what happened to Ruth? Where did she get such grace of commitment? Where did that come from? Oprah went home. She never did anything wrong. It was the most sensible thing to do. But Ruth didn't. Can we see God in that? Is God working behind the scenes, perhaps? We move into the second act now. For Naomi and Ruth to survive back in Israel, in Bethlehem, God had provided a program for the poor. What happened at harvest time, when the harvesters went into the field, the poor and the widows could go behind the harvesters 
and the harvesters were told not to harvest all the way to the edges of the field but to leave the edges so the poor could come behind them and they could harvest they could take the gleanings of what was there and it would be sufficient to feed them or to provide for them that was God's provision so Ruth we find engages herself in this work she has to to feed her mother-in-law and herself this is the only way forward what she doesn't realise is the fields that she goes into are owned by a man called Boaz who is a relative of her deceased father-in-law a cousin I believe or a close relative do you know ladies a kinder man you will not find anywhere he is so kind but I've said already everybody in this story is absolutely wonderful the women of Bethlehem are wonderful the harvesters are wonderful this man is, is gracious and kind the elders they're supportive it's just wonderful and as you read between the lines do you do that when you read the Bible? Sometimes you come up with the wrong answer, so be careful. But we're supposed to read between the lines. And what I get is, the minute Boaz saw this woman Ruth, he fancied her. Okay? Well, I put it nicer. He took a shine to her. We still use that expression. He took a shine to her. He sees her, and he likes her. Now, we don't know how old he is, but I think he's a good bit older than Ruth. We, we get sometimes pictures or, or portraits or paintings of Ruth and Boaz, and they both seem young and healthy and vibrant. Actually, I think Ruth was pushing towards 40. She'd been married 10 years already, remember. He's probably about 60 to 80. He's old and mature and everything, so I'm sorry if I've dashed some of your pictures of this wonderful, young, young, healthy couple who are loving each other. But that's it. We have to try and read a bit. In chapter 2, then, we read about a meeting where she's gleaning, and he walks into the field, and he sees her for the first time, and we find out what happens on that first day of meeting. As, you, as I read through it, I drew out all the words that I thought would describe Boaz. Listen how I would describe him. He's important. He is successful. He's a businessman. He's very polite. He's spiritual. He's concerned. He's fatherly. He's caring. He's helpful. He's protective. He's thoughtful. He's observant. He's listening. He's positive. He's reassuring. He's comforting. He's kind. He's hospitable. He's accommodating. He's sensitive. He's generous. And he's gentle. Ladies, what if you met him on the very first day? You found that man. I mean, fantastic. What a brilliant man to find. Wonderful man to find. End of the chapter. It's interesting that the book is called Ruth, but the first chapter seems all about Naomi, and the second chapter seems all about Boaz. So 
Where's Ruth in this? Why is it called Ruth? If I was to write a story of your life, I wouldn't write about you. I would write about all the people that you had helped and all the people who had helped you. Is that true? You want to know about what people have done, who they have helped, and who has helped them to get where they've got. So perhaps it wouldn't mention you, just the relationships that you had. And we discover this in here. See, life is not about you. Well, you say, my life is about me. No, it's not. It's about those that you relate to, those that you love, and those that love you. So, some more questions at the end of chapter 2. Apart from Ruth being so loyal, what other virtues did she possess? Well, as you read it, look for the virtues. They, they come through the page even though they're not talking primarily about Ruth. Why is everybody in this story so positive and loving and kind? Why? Is it a glimpse of something in the future? A better life? How do you explain all the things that are happening to Ruth and Naomi? Was it good fortune? Was it luck? Was it chance that things happened? Was it coincidence? Accidents that things turned out the way they were? Or things just worked out like that? No, of course not. You know that God was moving behind everything in your life. Do you doubt for one minute that God isn't moving behind everything in your life? Sometimes you can become frustrated that things aren't working out. But listen, God's working behind the scene. He never stops. He's discipling each one of us. He's taken on the personal responsibility of discipling every one of his followers. And so what is happening in your life, God knows. God permits. God intervenes. God says these things will happen. Now we come to chapter 3. We'll soon get through this, but I want you to go home and read it, please. I want you to be inspired to read this book. It comes to the very heart of the story, but before I go there, I have to explain something. I have to explain uh, about a, a, a man, uh, it was always a man, called a Kingsman Redeemer. It only appears here, bit, bit of an odd thing, although we see it popping up in other places of the Bible, but it's only mentioned here. What, what is a Kingsman Redeemer? Well... If a man dies and he leaves his widow, his widow is in a very vulnerable position. It is the duty and the responsibility, usually of the brother of the deceased, to come to the wife, who's now a widow, and say to her, listen, if you have any debts, I will pay them, I'll clear all your debts, and I will marry you, even if I have a wife already, I will still marry you, and I will give you a child, and with the child that you have, you can continue the name of your family, and the possessions that God has given in the land to you will remain with you. Now you 
think that's a bit odd compared with today. But that was God's way of securing the well-being of his people. A kingsman, redeemer. Naomi thinks that Boaz, because he's a near relative, can be a kingsman redeemer. But he's not the nearest relative we'll discover. There was another man who was closer. And this man had to step aside before Boaz could come and take his bride. So, back to the heart of the story. Now, if you thought Kingsman Redeemer was a little bit weird, this bit is even weird. But this bit's wonderful. Ruth says to, uh, sorry, Bo, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, you do exactly what I tell you to do because I want you to show Boaz that you want him to be your Kingsman Redeemer. So he says, at night, he was at the threshing floor, he'd been busy with all the harvest and so forth. She says, if you go to the threshing floor tonight, he will eat with all his friends, some of them will go home, and he will sleep to guard his grain of the store that he's got. She says he will sleep quite quickly because he's been working hard. As he sleeps, you are to go, and she washes herself nicely and she puts perfume on and nice clothes. You can read the story, fantastic. And just go and lay at the end of his bed by his feet. Okay, now in this day of liberated women, I don't know what the women are going to think of this. Anyway, bear with it. It's a story, okay, uh, in God's word. You're to go and lay at his feet. And as he sleeps, take back the covering over his feet and just fold it back. And she says, when he wakes in the night or in the morning, he might be startled to see a, a woman laying at the end of his bed. But if he says to you, take the corner of the covering, his coat or his, his blanket, if he says, put it over yourself, just cover your over yourself. Now, there's nothing seductive in this. We're not there at all, nothing. This is just custom in Israel. What he's saying to you, is I am prepared to be your husband, your kingsman redeemer. Well, she's lying there very quietly that night. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up. Well, I think God woke him. I think God's everywhere in this story. You can't miss God. He wakes him up and he's startled. Who's there? And she said, it's your servant, Ruth. And he knows exactly what she's doing there. He knows the custom. So he says, take the corner of my garment and lay it over your body. In other words, I want to marry you. I want to be your redeemer. I want to save you. I want it so you can be secure. It's lovely. The story is so lovely. Don't read it too fast. Read slowly. Read it slowly. Read it again and again until the word of God really ministers to you. It happens just like that. The final act, act four, Boaz has to contend with the, the closest kingsman redeemer. But this man has no interest in Ruth. Yes, he will marry her. Yes, he will give her a child. Yes, he will pay the debts. But in his heart and mind, all he wants is to get the land. 
realizing if he gets the land and he gives her a son and he hasn't got a son, all his property goes to Ruth's child. He says, I want nothing to do with this. Move it on to the next kinsman redeemer. And the next one is Boaz. And Boaz is only too pleased to take her as his wife. They have a child. They have a son. And it turns out that they are the great-grandparents of King David. And they are in the very line, the ancestral line, of the Messiah. A Moabite woman who had nothing to do with the people of God is drawn into the ancestral line of Christ. I said don't look into the theology too much or the doctrine. It is packed full of theology and doctrine. But just love the story. Love to read the story. Love to read the word of God. You must fall in love with God's word. As a book. As a story. Of Yes, there's lots of theology in there as well. But, but read it. And it's plain to see, isn't it? We're just like Ruth. We were distant and cut off from God. And God in his love, he moves to where we are, outside of the kingdom as it were, outside of the nation. And he draws us in by all these events. And he brings us into a place and he sends for us a redeemer. Of course, our kingsman redeemer is Jesus. Jesus came, he paid the debt, the debt that we owe to God for our sin. He paid it. And he too becomes our husband. We are the bride of Christ. We're not married yet. But when there is a marriage, God blesses the marriage with godly offspring. See, when we go to be with Christ... We will become his wife. And I don't know what's going to happen. But between the church and Christ, there will be godly offspring. I don't know what it is. That's just stored up for us in the next thing. So as you read this, will you enjoy it? Will you fall in love with God's word more? You can always fall more in love if, if it's got a bit cold and uh, a bit dutiful and uh, you're always analysing. Could you fall in love with his word again? And just like David, remember, read that Psalm 119 and look at all the ways in which David simply loved the word of God. God bless you. Pleasure to be with you and a delight to share.